One weekend of spring training games are in the books. It's time to overreact to it. You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, welcome on in to Locked On MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsey Crosby baseball writer and podcaster. Thank you for making this your first listen every single day. We're probably part of the Lockdown Podcast Network where it's your team every day. And every team got spring training games in the books over the weekend. It is time to overreact to these small sample sizes. But specifically what I want to do is look at some prospect performances that were particularly good and notable. And let's discuss these position battles and see if these, t- if these prospects can make the roster. So in the first segment, I want to cover two teams. First one's going to be the Yankees. Uh, so you saw uh, some interesting stuff going on with some prospects in, over the weekend for them. One, outfielder Jason Dominguez hits a mammoth home run. Uh, 420 feet, exit velocity of 109.7 just absolutely crushes. I am not here to say Jason Dominguez is going to make the big league team. Uh, This is absolutely something where, I mean, he he is a good prospect. He is easily the number two prospect in this system. Jason Dominguez is going to have more time in the minors. So, last year, single A, high A, double A. Combined 273, 375, 461. 16 home runs. Uh, 46 extra base hits, he got significantly better. And I think that we're now in that part of of Jason Dominguez's development where the people who thought he was the next Mickey Mantle and then thought he was a bust can maybe now realize, no, he is a good player. He is legitimately a good player. Is he the next Mickey Mantle? No. Was he ever going to be the next Mickey Mantle? No. But Jason Dominguez is a good player and has a promising career in the Bronx. He's probably going to go to AA to start the year. Uh, so you've got AA Somerset, AAA Scranton Wilkes-Barre. Could he be in Yankee Stadium by the end of the season? It feels like as of now, you kind of know what your outfield, kind of know what it's going to be. Left field's a little bit of a question. There is a possibility he is that advanced offensively, where by the end of the year, ideally, You do one of those end of the season. He gets just enough time to still be rookie of the year eligible next year. But it is entirely possible you see him at the end of the year if everything goes well in AA and AAA this year. The more noteworthy performance to me was shortstop Anthony Volpe. So uh, two for four, a single and a double, two stolen bases. So the 2019 first round pick is legitimately a candidate to open the season on the roster. Now, I don't necessarily know if he will, uh, but he is a candidate to do that. Last year, he had 132 games between AA and AAA. 249, 342, 460, 21 home runs, 61 extra base hits, 65 walks to 118 strikeouts, and 50 of 57 on stolen bases. So, the story of Anthony Volpe's season last year is he struggled early, right? Did not like it was a tough adjustment to double uh, A to start 2022. You know, scuffled a little bit. When you look at like 
from May 1st on. So once he got past that initial adjustment period, which is expected, we talk about the hardest level to go to in the minors is double A. It is the biggest jump. It is where you've kind of separated the career minor leaguers and organizational guys from the actual talented prospects. And the overall skill level of your double A team is significantly better. Uh, So struggled early from May 1st on until the end of the season. His slash line was 286, 356, 493. So was significantly better once he got over that acclimation period. And it's a really interesting situation because if you look at the Bronx and you look at the, uh, the, the, possible, the possible depth chart, right? You've got Gliber Torres at second. You've got um, Josh Donaldson at third. You have some combination or some position battle between Oswald Peraza, the, the I think now former prospect. I think he technically graduated last year. But Oswald Peraza and Isaiah Kiner-Falefa at short. And then behind them, you still have DJ LeMahieu, who we haven't even mentioned here as an option, as well as do-everything guy Oswaldo Cabrera. Very big fan of Oswaldo Cabrera. I think he could play anywhere. He'll probably be battling Aaron Hicks for the left field job. And I think Cabrera is a better option in left field than Hicks. Uh, From what I understand, Hicks got booed over the weekend at a spring training game like by his own fans. So that's wild. But... There is a scenario here. The thing with Anthony Volpe is, and it could be Volpe for all I know. I'm probably getting this wrong. I get everything wrong as far as names. Is he's not the best defender of these three guys. Offensively, easily has the highest ceiling of these three. Uh, It's something where the power is probably plus. The hit tool is probably plus. But the defense is probably going to be average, right? The range, he's above average speed-wise. I mean, you saw he stole a bunch of bases last year, stole 50 bases last year. But the actual top-end speed, uh, you know, is, is fine. It's a matter of the acceleration. Is it necessarily there to be an incredibly rangy shortstop? The arm also isn't that great. It's, I, I have it as like fringe, just a little bit below average. He went to the Wake Forest Pitching Lab over, um, over the 2021 winter, I believe, trying to get some more arm strength to be able to handle short. Can he get by it short? Yes. Would he be the best defensive option? No. Is there precedent in this system or with this team in the New York Yankees to have a guy at shortstop that isn't necessarily the best defender but is a very good offensive hitter Yes, there is. I'm not saying that Anthony Volpe will be uh, Derek Jeter. I'm just saying it's not out of the realm of possibility because they see him as the most promising hitter in the system that even though there are better options at short, uh, defensively, like an Oswald Peraza, that Volpe ends up being the starting shortstop sooner rather than later in the Bronx. Interesting story to watch. He's coming in doing all of the right things offensively in spring. I still have some question. I haven't seen the spring training games. I still have some questions about how he can handle spin from a righty. But for the most part, uh, it looks like he'll be up sooner rather than later. The other team 
real quick wanted to mention because of a fantastic performance we're going to overreact to. Jordan Walker of the Cardinals. Obviously, drafted as a third baseman, now a right fielder. So, in one game, hit a 430-foot home run, which, you know, he's 6'5", 250. That makes sense. He's got that kind of raw power. 430-foot home run, and then playing right field, made a pretty difficult catch up against the wall. Very impressive. The route wasn't the best route in the world, but he still corrected it enough time to get there uh, and, and, and make the out. And then he hit, a so- he hit a soft grounder to third, beat out the throw, and on StatCast ran 28 and a half feet per second, which to kind of explain some of that, elite speed is considered 30 feet per second. So at 6'5", 250, he was relatively close to elite speed beating out an infield grounder in spring training in like the first or second game of the year. So, fantastic athlete. He played some center field in the Arizona Fall League. Like, I'll remind you of that. And so, you have a ton, an absolute ton of outfield options for the Cardinals. Because you've got Tyler O'Neill in center field. You've got Lars Newbar in left. Uh, you've got Dylan Carlson in right. Alec Burleson's on your bench. Uh, Juan Yepes has played some outfield as well. Brendan Donovan, probably your starting second baseman right now. But he can play both infield and outfield. But, like, you're going to find a place to put Jordan Walker because the bat is that promising and he's not going to hurt you defensively. So, uh, excited to see how that shakes out in St. Louis. In just a minute, I want to overreact to a, a small sample size for the Brewers and how it cl- clouds up their outfield situation. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Built Bar. It is obviously spring trading is here. That's all we're talking about today. And so, road tripping to spring training. I'm doing it in a week and a half. We're driving to Florida uh, to go catch some spring training games. And so, rather than gassing up the minivan, because we're taking the kids, and going inside to load everybody up on snacks, I'm stopping and getting some Built Bars. Uh, Built.com, I can place the order today. I'll have it here before I leave next week. It has fantastic, all the, fa- like, all the flavors. Uh, so good. Absolutely love those. But... If for some reason I don't think the mail will get here in time or I want to just go pick them up and have them right now, you can go by Walmart or Sam's. You can go to Walmart, go to the pharmacy section, and you can grab a four-bar box of brownie batter or cookies and cream. Or you can go to Sam's Club and get a 13-bar box of churro flavor Built Bars, which is my favorite. I love the churro. There's tons of flavors. Built.com has all of the flavors. Promo code is uh, locked on 15 for 15% off your order. But... Uh, Built Bars are the best way to to not eat a bunch of junk food on your road trip. Only 130 calories, very few grams of sugar, but 17 grams of protein. So the protein keeps you full. And then all of these flavors, they taste fantastic. They're wrapped in 100% real chocolate. So uh, it hits the same notes as a candy bar, but it's healthy for you. As you're planning your road trips, whether it's spring break, whether it's spring training, whatever it might be, you've got to do it with a Built Bar. Okay, so looking at spring training uh, performances, early performances, and overreacting to these small sample sizes, Garrett Mitchell of the Brewers went two for three with two home runs in the one game that he played over the weekend. So four RBIs. And 
This, we had this conversation towards the end of last year. Garrett Mitchell, when he was drafted, he was a 2021st rounder out of UCLA. 6-3-2-15, incredibly athletic, right? Uh, probably 80 speed guy. He's been injured a little bit, had a leg injury in 2021, had an oblique in 2022. So he's missed some time, but he makes incredibly hard contact. The question has always been the mechanics of the swing. So he had, he had a, a swing that was not, he didn't have the proper angle to the swing, right? It, it was more of a downhill swing than an uphill swing. And the thought process was he could just get the ball in place, smack it into the ground, and his speed was good enough where he was going to beat out most throws. I mean, he could just, in essence, almost bunt himself on just about every single play. He'd smack something into the dirt to third, beat the throw, he's on base. Uh, so they've been, the Brewers have been working with him on fixing the swing. And doing that, he's seen the strikeout rate go up a little bit. 26% last year in 2022. And the power wasn't necessarily there. So 68 games between AA and AAA. Reminder, he was out with an oblique injury. But for Garrett Mitchell in those 68 games, 287, 377, 426. Five home runs, 23 extra base hits, 30 walks to 74 strikeouts, and 17 of 18 on stolen bases. Well, he got uh, just about a month in the big leagues at the end of the year. Still has rookie eligibility. Uh, 28 games in the bigs. And the stat line, 312. So batting average up, you know, 30 points, 373 on base, right around the same as it was, slugging of 459, so about 30 points better in slugging, two home runs, five extra base hits, six walks to 28 strikeouts, eight to eight on stolen bases, and then obviously goes out for his one spring training game, two for three with two home runs. Here's what makes this difficult. If he has fixed the swing, if he has legitimately figured out what is going on uh, with, the, with the approach angle, and he has fixed this, and he is now has the potential for at least average, if not better, power. Here's your outfield situation you have to, you have to figure out now. Your starting outfield, he, he's already up. He was up the end of late, last year, so we're going to assume he's going to come back to the big league level. You have Christian Yelich and his massive contract in left. You have Garrett Mitchell in center. And then you have Tyrone Taylor in right field. Fair enough. That's fine. You went out, um, you signed Tyler Naquin to a minor league deal, I think, last week. You have Sky Bolt, who's a non-roster invitee to spring training in the outfield. Uh, you went out and you got Jesse Winker via trade from Seattle, who is probably going to DH, but can play some outfield as well. And then you've got a couple flex guys in your infield in a Brian Anderson and a Mike Brousseau, a Kesson Hero. They can all play outfield as well. So plenty of outfield options. And then you'll remember from our Brewers preview, you also have a ton of high-level prospects for the outfield. You have a Sal Frelick, who is also in spring training. You have a Joey Weimer, who is also in spring training. And then behind them in double-A, you have Jackson Churio, who is the number one prospect in the system, probably a top 10 prospect in all of baseball. And so it's very easy to see there is a logjam coming. The common assumption was in two years, 
you were going to have an outfield that was Joey Weimer and right. He has a massive, like an 80-grade arm. He has questions about the hit tool. I've seen 30-grade, things like that. But if he figures it out, he was going to be in right, Sal Frelick in center, and Jackson Churio uh, in either center or left. I mean, it's just you have lots of options. If Garrett Mitchell has figured it out offensively to go along with the 80-grade speed and the plus defense, add him to that mix, and you still have Christian Yelich, who, because of the contract, you are not going to be able to move unless you, get, you, you include top prospects in the deal for someone to take him. And so it is very easy to see if Garrett Mitchell's small sample size in the bigs and then incredibly small sample size in spring training is indicative of legitimate improvement and change in his offensive approach and his swing. How Milwaukee has a lot of guys who need playing time in that outfield and only three spots to give them. So, uh, as somebody who traded for Garrett Mitchell in his Dynasty Fantasy Baseball League, I really hope this is legitimate. I'm high on Garrett Mitchell. I want to believe it's real. Uh, that's why I went out and got him. But uh, we will see what happens once we get a larger sample size in spring and into the season. Either way, definitely going to be something to watch. I'm willing to put money on Tyrone Taylor probably getting traded at the trade deadline, if not before. Um, it's just, you've got to find room for all of these top prospects. And I just, I don't think Tyrone Taylor is of the same quality as a lot of these other guys. We'll see. Another small sample size thing to talk about, but an interesting scenario brewing is with the Mets. Brett Beatty, the third baseman, 2019 first rounder out of high school. Most of his time last year, 89 games in double A, 312, 406, 544. There's that 300, 400, 500 we slash, slash line we talk about that makes a guy a dude. 19 home runs, 41 extra base hits, 46 walks to 98 strikeouts, two of five on stolen bases. Came up to the bigs, got 11 games. Very first time he swung the bat was against the Braves, was a home run. Um, was I, one of two home runs he hit in that small sample. He ended up having an, an injury, missed the rest of the year. But is healthy, is in spring training, went two for two on Friday, turned around on Saturday, hit a home run. And so this is a, this is a scenario where like he had a 943 OPS in the high minors last year. And your third baseman right now, you have to think that the Mets aren't necessarily thrilled with Eduardo Escobar because they tried to sign Carlos Correa to play third base. Obviously, you remember that whole drama. That didn't work out. And so I feel like if Brett Beatty is as good as we think he is, if this small sample, incredibly small sample, is indicative of his skill, I could absolutely see a scenario where Brett Beatty makes the team out of spring training, is the starting third baseman in right-hand platoon situations, so if you're facing a right-handed pitcher, he is the starter. Eduardo Escobar has the small side of the platoon facing left-handed pitchers. And then you try to find playtime uh, for Beatty in the outfield. He's played some left field. You try to find playtime for uh, Brett Beatty whenever you have Escobar at third. You look at your outfield. You have Brandon Nimmo re-signed in center field. You have Sterling Marte in right. You have Mark Canna in left. I feel like you wouldn't have an, necessarily an issue lifting Canna occasionally for Beatty. Let Beatty play some left field. 
Uh, DH, I don't necessarily think you're going to have a ton of uh, run for Beatty there. You've got Daniel Vogelback, who apparently has lost a bunch of weight and looks fantastic. Uh, you've got that. You've got Francisco Alvarez banging on the door, ready to come up. And so, you know, Tommy Pham is on this roster. So uh, I feel bad about their fantasy football team when that comes around. But uh, either way, Brett Beatty probably deserves to make the team out of spring training and uh, should probably be the strong side of the platoon at third base, if not the outright starter. In just a minute, we're debuting a new segment. It's called Three for Me, and that's next on Locked on MLB Prospects. And we are back. Quick reminder, if you have questions for our Monday mailbag, I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball, show's on Twitter at Locked on Farm. You can email us, Prospects at gmail.com, or drop your questions in the Locked on MLB Prospects Discord. Link is in the episode description. Link is in the show notes. Uh, this new segment called Three for Me is where occasionally I'm going to take the third segment of the show to talk about something in baseball that I think warrants discussion. So this one today is Rob Manfred announced last week, actually in speaking to friend of the show, Evan Drellich from The Athletic, about the Economic Reform Committee. This is something that MLB is creating to talk about financial issues in baseball. The stated reason that they are doing this, there's two, there's two reasons why they say they are doing this. Number one is figure out the issue with the regional sports networks. We talked about this a little bit last week. Diamond Sports Group, who owns the 19 Valley Sports channels, 14 MLB teams have their games distributed via Valley Sports. Uh, those, uh, they are heading for bankruptcy. Additionally, you've seen Warner Brothers Discovery announce that they want to get out of the RSN business as well. And so, obviously, yes, you have to figure out what happens with that. Uh, teams get payroll money from those media rights deals because teams hold their local rights themselves, not baseball as a whole. So that has the potential to impact uh, payments to major league teams, uh, which is money that they do use for payroll. So you got to figure that out. One of the positives of this, as we talked about last week, is you have a chance to get rid of blackouts. If you do that, the other thing that they want to talk about is an issue that's been around in baseball for a long time, differences in revenue between teams. Uh, some teams make a lot more money than others. Now, the issue with a lot of the claims about baseball teams not being profitable or having to be thought of as nonprofits, shout out to uh, the Castellinis in Cincinnati for making that argument, is most teams' financial reports are not public. So they can say whatever they want. They can say they don't make money. They can say that they lose money on these teams, whatever. We can't prove it. But if they're losing money on these teams, why are they not selling these teams? And when they do sell these teams, why are people paying billions of dollars for a baseball team that is a money-losing business? It's a valid question. Now, the thing that I really want to talk about with this is Tony Clark, the executive director of the Players Association, talked on Saturday, again, to friend Evan, friend of the show, Evan Drellich, uh, as part of a larger press conference, about the, the union's reaction to this economic reform committee. Because there was a comment that Rob Manfred made in that press conference 
and he discussed an upper limit on salaries. And so this is kind of assumed to be related to Steve Cohen and the Mets. The, the whole thing here is baseball is unique versus a lot of other sports because there is not a salary cap. And so you saw in the new collective bargaining agreement, they added in a fourth level of luxury tax penalties that they like people were calling it the Steve Cohen tax because they knew he would spend a lot of money. Steve Cohen said when he bought the team, one, he was a fan of the team and wanted them to win and was willing to spend his own money to do it. He's put his money where his mouth is. They spent a lot of money on player development, on scouting, uh, a lot of that stuff to improve the farm system. And until those players are getting to the bigs and specifically pitching, pitching's the place where they haven't gotten the same return as they have on position players, like a Beatty, like an Alvarez, like a Vientos. And so they are spending money. They're paying $40 million plus uh, a year for Scherzer, for Verlander. They're going out. They're spending money on pitching. They're spending money in free agency. Their, their payroll this year is expected to be around $370 million. When you look at the percentage over the rest of baseball, this is the highest percentage over the rest of baseball since George Steinbrenner's Yankees did this. And the Players Association took out the reference to an upper limit on salaries to say that is a salary cap. We are, and this is, I'm going to quote Tony Clark here. We're never going to agree to a cap. Let me start there. We don't have a cap. We are not going to agree to a cap. A salary cap is the ultimate restriction on player value and player salary. We believe in a market system. The market system has served our players, our teams, and our games very well. End quote. So MLB actually in like last year in the CBA negotiations, they proposed a salary, not a hard cap and a hard floor, but they proposed a system similar to the luxury tax system that we have now, but they proposed a lower limit on it. Penalties if you did not spend at least that amount. Uh, now, the reason that was a non-starter was because they set the floor at $100 million, which is fine, but they lowered the luxury tax threshold at the top to $180 million. That's where luxury taxes would have started kicking in is 180. 14 teams right now are over $180 million and with, with another three right at, in the 170s. The league average uh, competitive balance tax salary is $173.9 million. So that's incredibly low. But I do think that ultimately you need to find some sort of way to institute a floor. Because the problem with baseball, and there's a lot of people on the internet, a lot of casual fans who say baseball needs a salary cap. No, they do not. Baseball needs a salary floor. There are teams who are spending less on payroll than Max Scherzer individually is getting from the Mets. The Oakland A's payroll this year is projected to be $40.9 million. Max Scherzer himself is getting $43.3 million. There are, counting up right here, 
they are there are nine teams that will have a payroll of under $85 million this year. The problem is not Steve Cohen spending too much money. The problem is owners at the bottom, the Castellinis with the Reds, uh, Bob Nutting with the Pirates, Don Angelos with the Orioles. The problem is the teams at the bottom not spending enough money to be competitive. Most other leagues that have a cap have a floor as well. The NFL's cap is something like 80-something percent of the ceiling. And so, like, you, you, you can't go over the cap, but you can't go under the floor. And MLB teams last year got more money in revenue sharing than some of these entire, entire uh, payrolls are at the bottom. The, there's two fixes to this. The harder fix to do is to institute a cap and a floor. And I think the only way a cap and a floor work is if you have uh, very obvious sources of income to set the cap and the floor, and they're automatically pegged to increase as those sources of revenue increase. The NFL does it like that. They say, this is how we calculate the amount of money that goes to the players. These are the sources. These are what qualifies and the cap will automatically increase every year as these increase. And then when you do that, you have to set the floor to be an appreciable percentage of that cap. You can't set the cap at 200 million and set the floor at 50. That doesn't fix the problem. You have to set the floor. If the cap is 200 million, the floor has to be at least half of it, if not more. But I think a better interim step that you can take, and this is all going to come up in 2026 when you have, I think it's 26, 27, when you have the new, the new CBA that is going to be negotiated then, is you have to change the rules behind revenue sharing where you have to spend revenue sharing dollars directly on player salary. The rule now is you have to spend revenue sharing money, uh, revenue sharing dollars on improving the major league product but it's not required to be salaries. So you can take your player development costs. You can take your scouting costs. You can take additional front office people, your dad, your analytics folks, all of these people, and you can claim that they are improving the major league product and spend your money on that. And that's how you get scenarios where the Oakland Athletics are spending their actual big league payroll, their 40-man roster is $40.9 million this year despite getting more than that in revenue sharing and pocketing the rest. So that's the, the ultimate in place we need to end up is a floor and a cap that are pegged to a publicly available measure of profitability that automatically adjusts up every year as, pay, as revenues increase. But the interim step is you have to get revenue sharing dollars required to be spent on major league salaries, 40-man roster salaries. And here's the thing about Steve Cohen spending a ton of money. Every dollar he spends in penalties, in luxury tax penalties, that goes back into the revenue sharing pool. So the more money he spends, the more money these teams at the bottom get to improve the major league product. Steve Cohen is subsidizing the profits of the Oakland A's of the Baltimore Orioles, 
of the Pittsburgh Pirates, of the Cincinnati Reds, and what Major League Baseball should require those teams to do is to spend Steve Cohen's money on improving the product on the field. It's a great week this week. We'll have more shows coming up for you all the rest of the week. Again, if you have questions for the mailbag, I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. Show's on Twitter at Locked on Farm. You can email us, LockedOnMBProspects at gmail.com. Drop your questions in the Discord. Links in the episode description. We'd love to have you. Until tomorrow's show, this has been Locked on MLB Prospects. Oh.